Welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Fred Shankelberg, the guest host for today's RAM special episode. While attending the Reliability and Maintainability Symposium held in late January 2016 in Tucson, Arizona, I had the chance to sit down with Bill Tante and talk about his work as a a prolific uh, uh, inventor and his current work as the senior director in IEEE for Future Directions. Please join me now with our in our conversation with Bill, recorded while at Rams. Bill, welcome to Dare to Know. Glad to have you with us today. Thanks, Fred. Mm-hmm. It's an honor to be here and uh, looking forward to this discussion. Right. You look a little nervous, though. You're not sure what I'm going to ask? Well, I'm not sure what mm-hmm. I'm going to ask. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. I'm okay. fine. But I'm trying to think of, and we're at Rams now, mm-hmm. and I think I've seen you here and met you here, I don't know how many times over the years. And we were talking just briefly before we started here, but in, I went to school close to where you were working and creating all kinds of marvelous things with IBM on, uh, on patents and silicon type stuff. Mm-hmm. So did you invent the internet? Was no, the... I did not invent the internet. Not even close. <laughs> okay. I'm a semiconductor physicist. That's my background. Okay. So mostly CMOS technology or more in the Gallimard side or various pieces? or All silicon based. Um, my core activity while I was employed by uh, IBM was to work on uh, technology development, which is to uh, understand the elements that are required in all the future nodes. So we would roadmap what the future nodes would look like, and my what responsibilities. Mean, my future nodes. So a node, a <coughs> node in a, a node in the semiconductor industry is typically a feature size. So they identify the node by the uh, the minimum dimension of a particular element in the and in the technology. Point two five nanometers now, or what's available now? Oh, now the uh, the industry is practicing and send, and shipping products in 14 nanometers. 14 nanometers, right. So and, I've been out of that for about 10 years. And, so and they're working their way down to what the ultimate limits will be, which is in the neighborhood of 7 to 5 nanometers. Once we reach, once the industry reaches that dimension, can no longer lithographically scale an image. You're beyond the uh, the lattice, the lattice limits. So you're you're now talking about not just not just trying to put um, or place elements that are that are beyond lithographic images. You're trying to place them within a lattice, so it becomes almost impossible to uh, to do anything of um, of statistical significance in terms of developing a, a reproducible unit. Right, right. So this sounds <coughs> a lot like Moore's law, though. Is that it, something you guys kept in in mind as you're working and looking at building your roadmaps or where the so Moore's law was is not necessarily a law. It was right. a um, it wasn't a it was a roadmap of of activities that all the companies followed, which basically said uh, every X number of years and X changed over time. But every X number of years, the density would increase by a factor of Y, and the performance would increase by a factor of Z, and that would define what the node would be in that next generation. And that had changed over time, but that's right. basically what Moore had described was how scaling would uh, take place and what would be the results of that scaling. So I remember 20 years ago, people saying, oh, we've reached the limit of our technology to, to advance more so that along that progression. But it's mm-hmm. folks like you were actively working to 
keep us on that traction. Yeah, that probably track. about every five years in the semiconductor scaling activity, uh, the industry came up against what they would call their brick walls. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, probably the last brick wall which was solved was the, uh, the fact that even though the dimensions are shrinking within the silicon, the dielectric or the, the insulator that separated the, um, the control mechanism, which is the gate electrode, from the silicon, and that's how you switch CMOS with the gate, right. uh, that oxide thickness could no longer scale. So that was a fundamental roadmap that needed, needed to be solved, and it was solved. Uh, the industry invented what was called uh, high K or high dielectric constant insulators, which the trick there was instead of having to build a very thin insulator, having a high dielectric constant allowed you to build a thick insulator again. So it puts you back on the roadmap. So okay, okay. the industry is practicing those now. And all the products that you have, this, this Apple computer that you're working from, <laughs> the phones that you use all, for the most part, have high K dielectrics as their main component of insulator. And the challenge in that, in that area was to develop a high K dielectric that was reliable and could withstand you know, a 10-year, 100,000-hour lifetime at the use temperatures that we typically operate at, somewhere right. between 65 and, and 120 degrees C. Right. So that was the challenge. And in my job, in my job as a semiconductor physicist, I needed to work on those kinds of things. Okay. So right. you'll, if you go back 10 years, you'll find all kinds of papers, in, not necessarily in RAMs, but in other IEEE conferences, Reliability Physics Symposium, the uh, International Electron Device Meeting, Integrated Reliability Workshop, many, mm -hmm. many other conferences in the semiconductor space, and this was the area of focus. Okay. You know, trying to improve those dielectrics so they didn't trap um, electrons or holes and cause right. charging, or they didn't break down under stress, um, under constant use, and, and now they're solved. And every company has their magic formula, which you know nobody talks about. But, nobody talks about it. but they're all very similar. When you come right down to it, they're all very similar. You know, the industry coalesced. And right, right. No, and it's one of those things, though, that I remember the, the folks at IBM when I was in school. It was one of the few uh, corporations that had these research facilities. And, and when I was in college, Bell Labs was still around. And that mm -hmm. was kind of my dream job, to go work at Bell Labs. And it got split up shortly after I graduated and, and spread out. Mm -hmm. And so IBM was on the list as a, a dream job for a young physicist. Uh, they ended up in in the Army for a number of years and ended up in California. But does IBM still have that, or are there private companies that are still playing that role as a, 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 a generic fundamental research facilities? Many companies have those facilities. IBM certainly has them. Um, IBM still has Yorktown Heights, which is their, their brain trust. Most of the senior scientists report into Yorktown, okay. or Fishkill, or Burlington, Vermont. Uh, they've they've moved most of the uh, the research the R and D into uh, SUNY Albany. It's called okay. Albany Nanotech. IBM mm -hmm. owns a piece. Uh, the state the state of New York owns a piece, and, and that's their main hub for developing new technologies. So the issue with with developing a node. So when you scale a node down, you go from uh, 0.35 micron technology, for example, to a 0.1 micron technology. Mm -hmm. The tool set that's required actually physically in height grows. If you can imagine the ability to image the smaller Im the smaller image requires lithographic equipment that's much different than what the previous node was. So physically, mm -hmm. physically they grow taller, and the requirements for stability in the building become different. 
Um, you know, what kind of vibration can the building hold? So all these mechanical aspects come into play. So and the air quality. So the air quality is a, is a tremendous, is a tremendous uh, issue. And if you look at some of the commercials you see on TV when people are advertising, you know, what's being done in these cool manufacturing fabs, you see most of them, most of them are in their own self-contained unit, and that's to maintain in the fab the air quality levels that they need to handle and not have defects come up within the, uh, within the package itself. The air quality, you're not talking about air pollution in Los Angeles, for example. You're talking about mo moisture from your breath mm -hmm. into the room. Or that kind of level. or or sodium from your from your skin, or you know hair follicles that that break down and degrade and end up in a in a process you know where they will create all kinds of havoc. Well, even a few random molecules is going to be enough to wipe out multiple cells and multiple pieces of these nodes. Right. So when you talk about the reliability of a of a semiconductor, this is a big issue. This is a real big issue. Even even the control when you look at uh, time zero reliability is an issue. So when you, in, in today's nodes, in these 22 nanometer and 14 nanometer nodes that are actually deployed, when you put an impurity atom in, in the device to personalize it to be an N-channel or a P-channel mm -hmm. transistor, for example, making the mistake or statistically having the problem where an ion implanter misses one sodium atom or one phosphorus atom to tailor them as N-type or P-type, that's enough to throw the threshold of voltage off by you know, many, many millivolts, which essentially provides you less margin in the design. So it's, it's a big problem. So if you can control sure, the human the pieces, the human pieces, what we just talked about, right. the defects, you've got that component you know, under your belt. But, right. And then there's, the, then there's the actual technology piece that you need to control too. When CMOS really, when personal computers and more consumer electronics started to really go, and even before that, there was a lot of burn-in of electronics. So you would get an ASIC or a component, and there's standards and all kinds of, and some companies still practice that. Mm -hmm. Is that necessary to do burn-in on these modern technologies? Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, <laughs> so back in the, uh, let's see, back in the 80s, I was responsible um, at, my, at my employer back then at IBM for the burn-in technology. Okay. And and I what had we no idea. <laughs> no, and and what we discovered and what we discovered back then, burn-in was was a process. So it's a process of um, measuring measuring the lifetime of a product. And once you know the lifetime, then there was a process of trying to weed out using burn-in to weed out all the infant mortality fails. So you'd like to basically truncate the distribution so that when those parts the the survivors go out in the field. They will have you know the lifetime that you expect them to. And some of those were caused by the impurities getting into the system, or mm -hmm. from process variation, or whatever, leaving a, a small defect that would yeah. manifest pretty quickly. So the burn-in would ferret those out, and the remaining part of the population was mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. So what we found back then, one of the major sources of uh, reliability fails in semiconductors was sodium contamination, actually. And, and sodium is a very mobile ion. Once it goes into the silicon lattice, it can move anywhere. And it, uh, it, it will be pushed and pulled by the field that is mm -hmm. uh, presented or that's in, that, uh, that is um, developed under use conditions. So it'll create a charge layer in an area where you don't expect a charge layer and cause all kinds of abnormal, ab abnormalities to, to take like place. It sounds like Murphy's Law. It will go to the place where it's provides the most harm or something. Not, not really. It's, it's, you know, it is physics-based. Right, and, right. um, 
When you have a positive potential, for example, on a gate electrode, it'll push the positive ion down to the interface, which will cause the, that, that device to act as if there was additional, additional charge there, which you don't want. Right. And, and then when that, when that transistor was shut off, the charge would go up to the top of the interface and essentially be screened. So it was, it was, you know, it's really a push-pull kind of activity, mm -hmm. and it was, it wreaks a lot, it, it causes a lot of issues. Okay. And it's a time-dependent mechanism. So the more you, the more you uh, switch it, the, the, if you will, the more it, uh, the, the hard, the larger the effect is. Okay. So in Burnin, so here's the, here's what happened in Burnin. In Burnin, um, in the beginning of time, Burnin was a process where you put the parts in, you run them at a safe elevated temperature, which the, you know, the parts expect to run mm -hmm. and, and operate at, and you run them at a, at an elevated voltage, uh, which you've characterized, so you know how the parts will, will run and, and switch, mm -hmm. and you take them out and say they're burned in, they're done. Let's test them and see how they work. Right. Now, I just told you that this mechanism is a time-dependent mechanism. Right. And burn-in has some time associated, but not much. Problem is, when you tested it, if this part had this issue, it would relax, and you wouldn't catch it and test. It would go out to the field. Oh, yeah. And in the field, the field, when it's in a system, it acts a lot like a burn-in unit because it's continually switching these devices right. at, at the use conditions and at the use temperature, right. which is much lower. Right. So the acceleration to cause a fail or the acceleration factor is is much reduced however it will cause the system to go down right, right. And, and that's what happened so we had to come up with a solution to find these fails before they got out in the field mm -hmm. and the big the big to do back in the 80s was to integrate uh, not just a, a burning oven that just stressed parts didn't know what was going on internally and out they went it was to actually measure the parts put diagnostics on a running actively run them but also are they running properly yes it would check it would check the uh, the, the data expects right. against what the the data the data expects were supposed to be so right. it, it would check real time and we found these fails which failed at elevated temperature and voltage because of this charge mechanism I just mentioned and uh, and these were deemed these had a category that we called in the industry recoverable fails hmm. because like I said it depends on the, where the charge was located uh, when you pull them out of the oven and test them, you may not find them, but they were found in the burning oven. So right, the, these right, were right. these were very, very, if you will, uh, mis these were parts that misbehaved and needed to be repaired. <laughs> and, and then the industry found out how to eliminate um, the sodium the sodium issue within the line, and mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. part of the process that I just mentioned of you know how people how people suit up in the line and how they basically keep keep all their own impurities out of the out of the pot, so to speak. Right, so you know right. the industry evolved. Uh, but burn-in is still required, and this uh, this this area that's called in situ burn-in still exists. Now that's at the fab or in the manufacturing process of creating the chips. I'm thinking of the two, like Lockheed Martin or a company that buys the a packaged silicon. Do they need to do burn-in? No, that it's done. So when 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 an industry specs what they would like for lifetime use condition operating voltage. The manufacturer will then tailor the um, the yield, the yield monitoring, the burn-in process. Um, it may even be wafer-level burn-in. For example, right. they'll tailor all that to meet what the manufacturer requires. So the same part, the same part that's sold in a military application, for example, or a consumer application, um, may have a different lifetimes and right. may have a different price point simply because of the process of test and burn-in that it went through okay. to to go out the line. Right. Right. Yeah. It, okay, so what, I mean, burn-in was a, 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 
So what's next for the silicon? I know you've been out of that, you know, the research labs for a while, and you're, you're now at uh, IEEE. Yes, I work at IEEE, and um, I run a group that's, that's called Future Directions. And in, a, and in this group... It sounds like a research lab. It is a, it is a research lab, but if you will, it's, uh, it's very broad. So I, I, I have the, uh, the honor to work with some of the world's leading experts in many, many different fields. Mm -hmm. So it's not just silicon now. It's, it's um, the, the grid. It's people in the communications industry. It's folks that are working in uh, computer science, software-defined activities. So there's a lot so of... Did you invent the Internet of Things? No, I did not invent oh, the Internet okay. of Things. But we have an initiative on the Internet of Things. Right. Yeah, but which, which is very exciting because that involves, you know, when you talk about reliability, the Internet of Things um, involves a lot of edge devices. So in the, in, the, in the paradigm we just talked about, we're talking about brick and mortar, you know, cloud-based cloud solutions where all, these, all the computing power is housed in one environment, and that environment has been very well controlled, and mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's very reliable, and uh, it's, it's being managed by you know, folks that are there 24-7. Right. Now when we move to the Internet of Things, computing takes place basically in the world around us. And most of these devices are all edge devices and they're sitting out there all by themselves. And you're expecting that what they report on, whatever, they're, whatever they've been instrumented to do, is accurate. Right. So a whole new paradigm comes up. Well, there's the, I mean, just measurement system analysis and communication protocols and continuity, plus just the... the we're putting systems in place with people like me and a homeowner to put it under the desk or, and put it next to the cat box. And, and you forget about it. And forget about it. It just yeah. works. It's supposed to just mm -hmm. work. But, yeah, the question is how long and you know, what temperature and uh, what, uh, what conditions. You know, humidity is a big deal. And what happens, what happens when it sits outside and we have uh, a solar flare? You know, what, what does that do? Is it still reporting the correct data? So all those kinds of things are need to be addressed in the Internet of Things environment. And then the issue of just security, privacy, trust. You know, these things are sitting out there. How so, do you know that they're not being um, maliciously altered by somebody? something, I want to say, in Mashable a couple of months ago where uh, some folks were able to control an insulin pump remotely, mm -hmm. you know, hack into it, basically. And so some of the medical devices are quasi-Internet of Things. Other manufacturing control and censoring devices are similar type technology. Mm -hmm. but, so the, the future, uh, I'll draw like on the name of that group, Future Endeavors? Future, future Directions. Future Directions. And is, is that more like a, a, a place where people are thinking through these tougher questions? And they, they are. So for example, in Internet of Things, one of the areas that's being discussed is Perhaps, for, take for example a geotype sensing environment. So that's an easy one to think about. Where we've Geo, got we've got we've got we've got sensors all over the place that are easy, maybe measuring temperature, or they're measuring uh, earthquakes, or they're reporting wind or, or anything yeah, like that. So surfers love those sensors, by the way. Yeah. So so just imagine imagine that environment. And you pick any any you know any paradigm you like, and, and there's thousands of these things all over the place, and mm -hmm. you're you're making decisions. You're making a decision based on what what the group reports. So what we're thinking, what, what the industry is thinking about is creating a master-slave type environment where um, one of those or maybe a couple of those or a family of those actually have some, some advanced computing power and they, they, will, if you will, they will, if you will, monitor and enroll all of the slaves that are just reporting data. So they're reporting the data. Is this the concept where you have like four or five items reporting and you're looking for the outlier anomaly, some 
right. some if, analysis to say well, that's odd. Let's if somebody's let's misbehaving, that. you know, somebody's misbehaving. somebody's misbehaving, they may look at it and say, okay, I'm going to bring in his brother, which we haven't used yet, and see what he reports. And so then some voting kind of system, yeah, or and, redundancy and basically. It's redundancy, and it's also it's also uh, having some some remote intelligence, not just the uh, the transmission of information. Because before, if you just average those numbers, you're going to have the outliers and the misbehaviors contributing right. erroneously. Before it goes, yeah. And then it gets rolled up into. So there's this there's this discussion of the master slave and the masters who are somewhat of a nanoprocessor, if you will. They have some computing capability. And then they spool up to the next level of assembly. So you can imagine that these things eventually get spooled up to the cloud. But by the time they get there, the data has been, has been, um, if you will, massaged and uh, and corrected well, if need clean. be. And we've done that in database design. Mm -hmm. up. There's often lots of error checking and, and cross checks yeah. and checksum type things for transferring data. All those things come into play to maintain data integrity as you go. Yeah. So. It, if I if I may, um, I'll just provide another parallel to this to sure. this universe. If I switch gears and I talk about we talked about the end of scaling and Moore's law, right. which which is real and it will happen, and whether it happens in my lifetime or, or yours, it it will eventually happen because there's nothing left to scale. So everybody realizes when you go to zero, you know there's a discontinuity. <laughs> so when, once we reach that discontinuity, which will probably be something greater than zero. The, the, the question comes up, what will the new computing architecture look like? Mm -hmm. and, and some of the new architectures that are being discussed are things like neomorphic computing, which is brain-like computing. So it, if, okay. you will, if you will, it would be sim sim similar to what we do in our brain, where we actually, our brain votes on an answer. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no single answer. It uses, it uses our connections and, and weighted strength to vote, so it's a statistical it's a it's a statistical result mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in essence. So people are experimenting, companies are experimenting with systems that do that. They actually, for example, in a digital world, the easiest way to describe it is if I have to elicit a response on a particular action, I will I will run five or six perturbations. I can do this in silicon today. I'll run five or six perturbations of that mm -hmm. and vote on the result. So it's it's not deterministic computing. It's a statistically based computing system. Called Sounds like the way I play chess. It's you know, here's my four or five options. Which one would likely mm -hmm. produce a good result? So that's called neomorphic computing. And okay. there's been some there's been some uh, attempts to do that in silicon. The difference, the problem in silicon, and it's, this is why silicon won't work in these next generations, are KT over Q. KT over Q, which Sounds is the, the thermal energy that uh, you know the base unit of energy in a silicon system, is is too high. It would require megawatts to. Uh, to basically have a computing environment um, com compared to what we have today, which is deterministic. To right. By to the way, I want it small and portable with a, a you know, week-long battery supply. Yeah. Yeah. So megawatts probably won't work. You know, our brain is only a couple watts, so right. you know, we don't have the computing power of our brain, but our brain is very slow. So that's the that's there's you know. A difference, yeah. So there's a there's a, there's a whole bunch of paradigms of what will the next architecture look like and how so that's will, one of them. and how will that work? It's it's a possibility. Right. It's a possibility, but it probably won't be a silicon-based system because the about, power dissipation is too high. How about photonics? The the you know Star Trek type the, the light computing because I know there has been some work in the communications of using uh, creating switching devices, mm -hmm. just not taking the light the fiber down to electrons and then back out again, they switch it in light. So what's, what's happened now to, to try and stay on more, the Moore's law path of scaling, which mm -hmm. is, you know, double the density and, 
and uh, double the performance, basically at the same power and the same cost, so to speak. Cost. We have lower cost. Well, <laughs> when you double, when you do these doubling factors, then the cost gets uh, gets a little bit washed out. But right, right. but in terms of what you just asked, um, in terms of photonics, what what this, what the uh, what the silicon the semiconductor industry has done is they've created this new uh, packaging um, environment where they're stacking stacking, if you will, uh, thin thin layers of active device silicon mm -hmm. on top of each other. So you have the best of the best for different components. So for example, um, if you are doing, if you have a logic product, like a microprocessor, mm -hmm. you know that you use, you use the technology that has the best logic in it, whatever that happens to be. Right. And, and then you need on top of that, you want to have onboard memory. You want a lot of onboard memory because that helps you um, with reduce the latency by not having to go off chip. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you take a different technology which has your best memory technology. You stack that on and you interconnect it with what's called a 3D integration, a 3D interconnect mm -hmm. through, through those two assemblies. But they're very thin, so these interconnects become um, much easier to build and fabricate. They're not, okay. they're not you know, aspect ratio, they're not a thousand to one. They're, they look more like the inner level, the inner level connections that we have now in, in a standard chip. So they're okay. much easier to do. Right. The trick is to how do you make, how do you fabricate these thin, these thin slices of silicon? Now, one of the issues in scaling is power dissipation. Right. You got to get the heat out. Got to get the heat out. And and the circuits that typically are the ones which have the most heat generated are what we call the off-chip drivers. The off-chip drivers are what are driving the signals from a chip onto a usually a PC board. Right. And you know, there's and a lot of inductance, a lot of inductance, and a lot of capacitance, a lot of resistance. So those drivers usually have to be very, very strong in terms of how much current they can put out right. and what they can overcome to to have uh, the low latency out on the board. So the the trick here is what's being now that we have this 3D integration, what's being developed is putting an optical layer on top, a photonics layer, and shipping those signals. Uh, using photonics, which now does not require pushing, uh, pushing these huge, these huge off-chip drivers, and the and the off-chip drivers, by the way, are typically the circuits that are the most unreliable. And I shouldn't say the most unreliable, but have the lowest lifetime because they're used so much, and they're the power. They are right. the power-hungry drivers. Well, that's you know power supplies that stays consistent at mm -hmm. all the levels. So so now, if you have you know a chip which is putting signals out in photonics, you can marry it. On the assembly to another photonics level and receive that mm -hmm, information. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It also allows you to have a mixed signal interface because now that you're doing it in photonics, you don't need to worry about you know the levels on my chip are using uh, one volt, but the levels on the board are using five volts. How do I interface and build mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. a um, a level shifter or a voltage a voltage divider that can handle that? The photonics will handle it uh, in in. In the photonics itself, right, right. So that's a beautiful, a beautiful solution, and and that'll probably be what drives the industry for the next decade. We'll hear a lot about 3D integration, right. And I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of uh, a lot of work for reliability engineers as they work through those that's those, those activities. That's usually a red flag for us in the reliability industry is, is anything new, and then there's this rush to get things to market and commercialize things mm -hmm. and so on. So it's Oh, these will have challenges. These will have challenges. The interconnects, these off-chip interconnects will have challenges. Uh, the fact that you're mixing technologies of different different strengths and weaknesses will have their, their own issues. You'll probably have some thermal mismatch because the, you know, the, the microprocessor core that I mentioned will mm -hmm. probably run at a temperature that's much hotter than the memory, the memory plane. And some of that's going to be transferred, so that needs to be worked out. Balanced out and um, sorted. 
No, interesting. Well, thanks, Bill. I, so, I appreciate it. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a... Now, if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about the, your work with IEEE, or your, I, I think a Google search will find a lot of your prior work with I, IBM I think so. and so on. Yeah, I think uh, so. Uh, so what's the best way to get in touch with you? What, what are you doing now? So we have a URL for Future Directions, which is IEEE.org slash Future Directions, I believe. But right. I'll send you that uh, in an yeah, email. Yeah, we'll add it to the link. And, and then I have a direct email address, wtanti at IEEE.org, and I'll okay. add that too. And uh, if people want to be involved in, um, in the activities that are going on in the future directions, we have quite a few. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned a couple of them here. I mentioned this uh, new wave of computing, which is the Rebooting Computing Initiative. Mm -hmm. You talked about Internet of Things. We have an Internet of Things initiative. Right. We have an initiative on Smart Grid, uh, an initiative on cloud computing, an initiative on big data, which we didn't talk about. Right, another, right. another another, very uh, well, how about interesting area. And robots? That's another area we had to talk about. I don't have an initiative in that area. We have a society, the Robotics and Automation Society, which is going to do some work on advanced robotics. Okay. And uh, actually, I believe they're going to look at some of the social implications of what happens when, you know, a robot takes over. Well, we got Hollywood looking at that too. Yeah, we do. But I think I think at IEEE we can do a good job of understanding <laughs> the real the real issues and coming up with real solutions. That's right. That's right. Well, great. Well, I appreciate it, Bill. Yeah, this was fun. All right. Good. And yeah. We'll do it again. Yeah, we should. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks. All right.